my family, brew beer. I learned everything I could about beer, even to the point where I was on a podcast and I was called Kirsten Alewife. So it was like a huge source of pride. And that's actually how I first impressed you, right? Yeah, we were at an open mic, actually, for comedy, and she ordered a beer, and she commented on it and said something very technical about the brewing process. And I thought, she's cool. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Kirsten Logan and Frank Gazera are a married couple. They live in Rhode Island, and they both do stand-up comedy, which means spending a lot of time in bars and clubs. Nightclubs are naturally dark, and there's a lot of people there and a lot of social anxiety. Frank and Kirsten would be the first to say they were drinking too much. But then came the pandemic, and things got way worse, especially for Frank. So now I'm stuck at home all the time and I'm working from home. I don't ever have to leave the house, and there's not a ton to do, so I just I just drank more. And it went from going to buy us, you know, a couple six packs of beer for the next few days to going, you know, now it's a few times a week and I'll buy the beer, but also a bottle of bourbon. And then it's twice a week. And I also might pick up a nip or two and maybe I'll have those right when I get home. It's like a little treat, you know, and it just escalated. I'm curious, when did you first see data on how our drinking had changed yeah, so a few months ago, the federal group, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Addiction, released their annual sales data for consumption trends through 2021. And the report was pretty striking. Caitlin Gilbert is a data reporter for the Wellbeing Desk at The Post. She and our colleague, addiction reporter David Ovalle, have been looking closely at alcohol consumption in the U.S. and how it's changed. We're drinking a lot more. I wasn't surprised that it had gone up during the pandemic because I think you just sort of instinctively think, okay, people are locked away in their homes in quarantine, and so they're going to start drinking more. Um, what actually surprised me is that it had been going up for quite a few years before the pandemic and then just exploded. And this spike in drinking has had pretty dire consequences. So I took a look at the latest CDC data and was really shocked to see this really significant increase in deaths um, where the primary cause was alcohol. We're talking over 54,000 deaths in 2021, um, which is a pretty staggering number. And that was way up from just a few years earlier. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman. I'm your guest host today. It's Thursday, November 30th. This time of year, between Thanksgiving and New Year's, is when a lot of us drink more. Double the usual amount, according to some studies. But drinking more isn't just happening around the holidays. Today, I talked to Caitlin and David about why alcohol consumption has spiked in recent years, even before the pandemic and how changes in our policies and our culture could save lives. Let's take before the pandemic first. Why was there already an increase in alcohol consumption? One of the main reasons that a lot of experts point to is 
the fact that it's just cheaper to buy alcohol now than it's ever been because of the way we tax alcohol. So um, taxes have been pretty stagnant on alcohol for decades. Raising taxes on alcohol, whether it's at the federal level or at the individual state level, is not a very popular thing. It's not something that gets done very often. In fact, um, for example, in Massachusetts, the excise taxes on alcohol haven't been raised since, I believe, the 80s. And I think there's just sort of more of a general acceptance with alcohol sort of just being this normal thing, right? It's not something that's maybe viewed in in such dire way as, say, the opioid crisis, which, of course, is killing over 80,000 people a year in this country. So um, maybe it's just normalized a little bit more culturally. I mean, certainly the marketing toward women has gone up a lot um, in the last few years. Spirit sales have gone up tremendously, um, and that's been a huge marketing thing um, as well. So there's um, a lot of different reasons, but certainly the costs play a big factor. You know, what you were saying about the social acceptance of drinking, um, I think became even more true during the pandemic, right? Like, I remember this meme very vividly of, like, someone taking out their recycling and they had a ton of empty wine and liquor bottles. And, you know, before the pandemic, you might say, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I just had a party. And then during the pandemic, you're saying, oh, don't worry, I didn't have a party. I'm just an alcoholic. And like this was almost a running joke online and on social media that people were coping with the stress and isolation of the pandemic by drinking. I think so. I mean, we all coped with the isolation of the pandemic in different ways. And certainly the kind of humor about drinking more, um, you know, really reflected things that were really happening in people's lives. And, you know, certainly we all know people that, you know, were drinking a lot more during the pandemic. Um, it was incredibly difficult for people who, who were drinkers to begin with to stay sober during the pandemic. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an uh, incredibly interesting dynamic and um, it'd be really fascinating to see if the trend will continue to go up. And for all its social acceptability, we know drinking can be really dangerous. Caitlin, I know you said we saw this huge spike in deaths during the pandemic where the primary cause was drinking. Um, you said there were 54,000 deaths in the U.S. in 2021, which is the most recent year we have data for. Is that like any death involving alcohol if someone was drinking and driving and crashed their car? Is that included in this number? No. So this is exclusively deaths that um, have this underlying cause of alcohol. It does not include situations where someone, for example, is um, driving drunk and that ends up in a fatal car crash. It does not include um, violence associated with alcoholism. Um, it is exclusively situations like most commonly cirrhosis, liver disease, um, situations where you have harmful use disorder long-term. Um, but yeah, this is a this is probably a fraction of the total number of deaths that are associated with um, alcoholism. Wow. Okay, that's really shocking. Um, and with this number, did you find it varied state by state, or was this across the board? Actually, the other very striking thing about this data is that deaths increased in every single state in this time period. But the increase was very, very pronounced in a handful of states, particularly uh, Mississippi, where the deaths spiked um, over 150%. We saw Delaware death spiking 
quite significantly. Again, we saw that consumption increase very heavily there too. New Mexico has one of the highest death rates from um, alcohol causes, over 51 per 100,000 people every single year. Um, and that also increased quite significantly in that in that time period. So we're seeing like really, really big spikes in certain states for sure. So, David, you cover addiction and opioids for The Post. I wonder what what makes alcohol different from other drugs that you cover? Well, for one, it's legal. Um, It's legal and um, it's something that I think maybe people don't really think about in the same way. Alcohol is in our face all the time. It's on it's on TV. It's um, it's on social media. It's, um, you know, sitting on our kitchen counters and in, in our refrigerators. So just something I, d- I think we just don't think about as much. But certainly, um, as Caitlin was, was talking about, the numbers are pretty striking when it comes to health deaths, let alone deaths that just, you know, are caused maybe indirectly by alcohol use. David, I'd love to hear more about this couple you spoke with, Kirsten Logan and Frank Gazzaro. Uh, we heard about them at the beginning of this episode. Can you just tell us more about them and, and their relationship with drinking? They... Both have day jobs, but um, their relationship with alcohol was really has really been molded by their experience as stand-up comedians, right? So they were literally getting paid in alcohol. A show might be, come and perform for half an hour, I'll give you a hundred bucks and you get two free drinks. And if you're intelligent, you calculate what's the highest alcohol <laughs> you can get with those two free drinks. Yeah. But yeah. it was never two. Yeah, was- no. Two, four, six, eight. It just kept going. So what what happened when all the bars and clubs closed down? Well, for Kirsten, she continued to work because she was considered essential as a uh, as a technician for a uh, veterinarian's office. Um, and what's interesting there is um, the stress of being out there and possibly contracting the virus really contributed to her to her drinking because it's just the stress levels were through the roof. And kind of differently for Frank, he was just stuck at home, so a lot of it was boredom and just literally having nothing else to do but sit there on on the couch. I got hit with a pretty severe episode of depression, and I just self-medicated intensely. There was about a year where I just pretty much drank and played video games. He was literally down in three-fourths of a bottle of bourbon every single day. And, um, I mean, just relentless drinking day in and day out um, to the point where he started feeling really sick. He started feeling really weak. And, you know, one day toward the end of 2021 is when he just suddenly, you know, couldn't function anymore. Yeah, I got sick. I woke up uh, one Sunday morning and I just, I couldn't get out of bed. Had to ask his wife to take him to the emergency room. They did blood work and came back and said, you know, your liver's inflamed. They're all just like, you You don't really have a choice at this point. If you don't stop, you're going to be hospitalized again sooner than later. I know these things aren't always so clean, but I imagine that was a bit of a wake-up call for him and for Kirsten. So what happened after he ended up in the ER? So Frank actually had to um, stop drinking, but he couldn't stop drinking cold turkey because his body would have given out. But literally, it was life or death. I mean, if he were to have kept drinking, it 
would have cost him his life, and he would have been one of these statistics that Caitlin uh, examined. It's one of those things where if you sat down and just uh, formed a hypothesis about what might happen if everything shut down and all the liquor stores stayed open and everyone was bored and scared and locked in their houses, it's kind of what you'd expect to happen, and it's what did happen, I guess. It's scary, though. It's scary to think how many that there's, you know, so many more people out there doing exactly what I did. After the break, we hear how things have changed for Frank and Kirsten. And I talk with Caitlin and David about how permanent these shifts in our drinking might be, or if there's any hope of reversing the trend. We'll be right back. What is different for Frank and Kirsten now that they have stopped drinking? And how, how are they moving through the world? I imagine comedy clubs are reopened in Rhode Island. Um, you know, are they, are they back to doing stand-up? And, and what's different now? Frank and Kirsten are back to doing stand-up. And they are reintegrating into the world just like everybody else. Um, but um, they have stopped drinking. They actually, and this is sort of how I found them, was they started a networking group for non-alcoholic beer. Um, so a, a way for people to learn more about it, a way to find out what, you know, what establishments are carrying different types of non-alcoholic beer. And that's one of the glimmers of uh, optimism in this story is that um, there is a growing recognition that, you know, you can drink non-alcoholic mocktails or you can drink non-alcoholic beers. I mean, the growth in those industries um, have been um, you know, through the roof, actually. They've been pretty pretty uh, steady. Um, so there is this growing recognition after the pandemic that alcohol use is an issue and that there are ways to um, moderate your drinking. Caitlin, I'm curious if that's something you're starting to see in any of the data you've been looking at. Is there a sign that people are reassessing their relationship with alcohol, quitting drinking, changing their habits? Gallup essentially has been asking this question of Americans for a very long time. Essentially, do you drink at all or do you drink never? Um, and the proportion of people that sort of say never has been fairly static for the past few years, um, around 36%. So we don't yet see a sign that, you know, we're having this big spike in sobriety. Um, that might be something we see at some point, but um, with this latest kind of consumption and deaths data, um, yeah, we, we don't yet see a large shift in sort of behavior um, from from folks and their relationship with alcohol. In your reporting, David, is is this something you see at a cultural level shifting? I know, like, Dry January has gotten more and more popular. There's, as you said, more and more options for non-alcoholic drinks. Is, is this something that you're noticing in, in reporting on addiction and people who are in recovery from addiction? You know, it's it's really hard to tell just yet. I think sort of superficially when we look at social media, we look at people talking about how they consume alcohol or if they are rethinking their relationships with alcohol, you know, certainly that exists. But I think it's a little too early to tell because remember the numbers had been going up on consumption and um, and then, of course, spiked during the pandemic. So I think we really have to just wait and see how the numbers bear out. But, I mean, I like to think it's 
an optimistic sign that, you know, people are at least cognizant of the damage that alcohol can have. I know after this story published, there was an overwhelming response from readers. Um, I wonder, what what did you hear from from people who reached out to you after this story? Yeah, it was um, really striking to see the response. I'm sort of used to the kind of standard comments on data stories, um, asking follow-up questions. But in this case, people were very forthcoming, particularly in the comments on our story about their personal struggles with alcohol over the years and then also specifically um, during the pandemic. If you wouldn't mind reading some of what people told you. Sure. Um, So one commenter wrote, "Um, I came close to dying trying to kick alcohol, eight days in intensive care and more than three years learning how to walk and talk again, and I thought I was a casual wine drinker. Um, And another commenter wrote, for the first several months of the pandemic, my wife stayed dry. She was really afraid of COVID and hardly ever left the house. Then in October, she discovered Drizzly, alcohol home delivery. On Super Bowl Sunday, she died in our guest room trying to detox herself. The coroner ruled cause of death was chronic alcoholism. The pandemic definitely hurt my alcoholism. Um, Drink four to five times a week. Like in the article, a drink is like an old friend you really don't want to say goodbye to, even though the friend really isn't your friend. I'm a work in progress. What I'm really struck by listening to those comments, which are so sad and powerful, uh, is that also um, it seems like multiple people died or nearly died trying to detox themselves. And I wonder, David, if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think this might be another side effect of the pandemic and the fact that people were at home is people might have sought help less often or um, or tried to detox themselves. If you look back at the pandemic, there was certainly a lot of hesitancy to seek treatments for a host of ailments. Many people were scared to go to the hospitals um, because, you know, they were afraid they were going to get the coronavirus, right? So I think certainly it complicated efforts to get into um, into detox, to get help with treatment, even, you know, going to, um, you know, whatever meetings or treatment facilities that uh, that were available at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it certainly was something that complicated um, how we go about treating alcohol use disorder. So I wonder, thinking about this reporting and and this pretty grim finding, is there anything that gives the two of you hope? Yeah, it's a tricky thing because in part the right the data is a little bit lagging. We have the data through twenty twenty one, so I'll be really curious to see if there's a slight you know dampening of the trend, um, which would personally give me hope about the sort of trajectory of what we've been seeing, particularly with deaths. Um, because if that sort of continues at the pace we saw during the pandemic, um, that's a, a huge number of people to, to be to be dying um, as a result of alcohol. I think, as David was talking about, like the rise in this industry around non-alcoholic beverages suggests, at least on the industry side, they're recognizing the products sort of need to change. And one thing that we have seen over the past decade is that binge drinking has decreased significantly for Americans under 35, um, which had been a problem for a long time. So seeing that decrease over time is suggesting that, you know, maybe younger generations are having a different relationship with alcohol. um, And it's something we'll definitely 
follow kind of going forward. You know, I, I always like to believe in the power of stories. And I think if, uh, you know, the fact that we can write about this and talk about it and be candid about talking about it and share people's stories like Kirsten and Frank, um, then that's that's a silver lining, right? People think about it. They're, they're, you know, emailing the Washington Post or commenting on the story about their own experiences. And those things help in, in maybe ways that are not so tangible. But certainly for me, that's something that's... Um, that's uh, positive coming out of some pretty grim data. David, Caitlin, thank you both so much for this reporting. Yeah, thank you too. Thank you. David Ovalle reports on addiction for The Post. Caitlin Gilbert is a data reporter for The Wellbeing Desk. If you're interested in reassessing your own drinking, we're including a few links in our show notes to information about dry January and the health benefits of drinking less. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by me. It was edited by Monica Campbell. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks to Steve Smith and Tara Parker-Pope. If you value this kind of reporting, please consider a subscription to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or follow the link in our show notes. I'm Maggie Penman. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.